attitude towards apologetics and then our attitude during apologetics. Um, so our attitude toward what, what should our attitude be towards defending the faith and then what is our attitude when we're doing, the, doing that defense with an unbeliever. Those are the two things I just want to talk about this morning. It's not going to be overly detailed. I mean, you only have one session here to do this and there's a lot that you can cover in apologetics. But I want to, I want to emphasize some things that are really important for us to, to get, some things that the scripture points out to us. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, let's, let's talk, we're going to talk about a number of texts today, just kind of an overview to get our attitude towards apologetics right. But then I really want to emphasize our manner of speaking with people and, and how, how we're going to be winsome and, and how our conversation should be, how our, how our attitude should be during apologetics. So turn to 1 Peter. This is the, you know, the first text that you go to in apologetics. Now, does anybody feel like they could give us a definition of apologetics? What's apologetics? First, it's not an apology. Right. It's a defense or sometimes a reason, but it's not, uh, you could say an argument in a friendly way, but it's not a battle. Right. So it's, it's not... Um, Yes, yeah, not an apology, so you're not you know, apologizing for the faith. You're not saying sorry for the faith. Um, yeah, it's not pugnacious, which we'll see in this text. It's not a pugnacious bickering, but it's a reasoned defense, an argument in the, in the logical sense of the word, an argument where you're giving a reasoned defense. And we'll see that here in this text. Look at 1 Peter 3, um, 15 and 16. 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Right, so those are the te- that was the first text we're going to look at. So to begin with, like we want to define apologetics. It's really right here. We want to be able to give a, a reasoned defense to anybody who asks us for a reason for you know, why we believe what we believe. Why do we, why do we believe the Christian worldview? Peter says, you better be ready to answer that question. When they have objections, you have to give an, a reason for what you believe. Does anybody know what the word arbitrary means? Yeah, to not have a reason without reason. So we shouldn't be arbitrary. We shouldn't say, well, I just believe Christianity because I just do. You have to have a reason. And arbitrariness is really the opposite of reason. It's, it's not having a reason. So we're supposed to be able to do apologetics. We're supposed to be able to have a reason. We're supposed to be able to give an answer when anybody asks us for a reason for the hope that's within us. So let's talk about our attitude towards the, the concept of apologetics. What are we supposed to think about. And this is just going to be bare bones basics. There's a lot we, can, we could talk about. But let's talk about um, what we're supposed to do. So turn to 2 Corinthians 10. We're told here in 1 Peter to be able to give a defense. I want you to see some more apologetic related texts. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. Second Corinthians 10, 3 to 5 says this. 
For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but divinely powerful for the, for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Okay, so when engaging with unbelief and unbelievers, we are destroying arguments. We're destroying speculations. We're destroying anything that the opinion of man has against what Christ has said. And we're taking every thought captive to be obedient to Christ. That means all of our thinking is ordered around what God has revealed in his word. Okay, we're not doing man-made things where we come up with our own you know, ways of doing things, our own types of arguments. We're going to stand on the Christian worldview. Every thought is captive to obey Christ, which is something we'll, we'll talk about in a little while. But the point is, in this text, our, our goal is to destroy everything that opposes Christ in terms of uh, worldviews and arguments. And we're supposed to um, order all of our thoughts and all of our arguments according to the Christian worldview. So you've probably heard it before, but that means is that you can't be neutral or pretend to be neutral when engaging with unbelievers. So if you're a Christian and you're engaging with an unbeliever, you better actually argue like a Christian. Argue with, by holding on to the entire Christian worldview the entire time you're arguing. So you don't set aside biblical truth when somebody brings an objection. Okay, you don't say, well, we'll just be neutral and we'll just, I'll just kind of pretend that I don't hold to the Bible. No, he's saying you take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You are a Christian and you have your whole Christian worldview intact the entire time you're doing apologetics with an unbeliever. This is an important starting point is that you never give up the ground that you have here in God's word. Okay, we'll get more on that in a minute, but look, at, look over to Jude chapter three as well. Or Jude, verse 3, rather. Jude, verse 3. is only one chapter in Jude. Jude, verse 3. Jude, verse 3. He says this. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation... I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Saying you need to contend for the faith. You need to be able to defend the faith and you need to defend it against all attacks from from people who would call themselves secular or whatever. Also from people who would call themselves religious, from heretics to hostile atheists, whatever. He's saying you need to contend for the faith. Now, in, in Jude, it's against, you know, false teachers in the church and things like that. But we're supposed to contend for the faith. So when the Christian faith is being attacked, contend for it, argue for it, defend it. Same thing with First Peter, same thing with Second Corinthians. We're destroying everything that comes against it. We're giving a reason for what we believe, and uh, we're contending for the faith. So we have these, these things in Scripture. You've got to be ready to, to battle it out with arguments over the Christian worldview and defending Christ's truth as he's laid it out in the Word. So... Here's a really important concept that we need to understand. Again, this is just basic overview stuff. But we need to understand the, the antithesis between the Christian worldview and then every non-Christian worldview. And what the Bible says about that. The Bible does not have this view that the Christian worldview is just one step above 
all the other worldviews. We're just a little bit better. We have a few more facts on our side. That's not, the, that's not the Bible's view at all. The Bible's view is that you have Christianity and you have everything else. And everything else, according to the Bible, is foolish. Everything else is foolish. You have wisdom in the Christian worldview and you have foolishness in every non-Christian worldview. Okay, that's what we have here. So we're not saying, well, you know, it's kind of a, we are just a little bit step above the rest. It's that it's, you have it or you don't. You have wisdom or you don't. You have knowledge or you don't. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is, if there's any text that you remember this morning, this is, this is the one to, to keep in mind. 1 Corinthians 1, um, 18 to 25 is what we'll read. Really, the first three chapters would be great to, to look at related to apologetics, but this, this section is really great. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. Notice, notice Paul's argument when we read this between God's attitude, God's attitude towards the so-called wisdom of the world. What every man's worldview comes up with, apart from the Bible, apart from God's word, what they come up with, what's God's attitude towards it all? Okay, let's look at verse 18. For the word of the cross, okay, so the gospel, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Hear that part again, please. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Bring it on. The wisest of the wise and in the, in the, in man's worldviews, bring them on. Where's the debater of this age? I want to see the wisest of the wise. Bring them on. All of them. Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? See his attitude here? It's not, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of insight we can get from the non-Christian worldview. No, God has made foolish the, wis- the so-called wisdom of the world. Look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So what's the point? By, by man's own reasoning, apart from the revelation of God's word, he can never reason his way to truth, to real truth, to God. It says the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. You can't just get there by thinking really hard or by looking around. You have to have the revelation of God's word. So God was well pleased to use the foolishness of the message, right? To, to the unbelieving world, the message of the gospel is foolishness. It's, you're, you're preaching from an old ancient book, and this is supposed to be relevant to me, but he has made foolish the so-called wisdom of the world. So verse 22, he says, For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What an awesome statement that is. What an interesting turn of phrase. The foolishness of God? There is no such thing. There's no foolishness with God. He says even if there was foolishness with God, it'd be wiser than men. And if there was weakness with God, it'd be stronger than men. Okay? God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Even if there was foolishness with God, it'd be wiser than all of man's thinking put together. 
okay? Because men's thinking by themselves, what we call autonomous reasoning, reasoning apart from using the foundation of God's word, is in and of itself, it's foolishness. It's the foolishness of unbelief. All non-Christian worldviews are irrational. They're foolish. Proverbs 1.7, you might know this one by heart, but go to to Proverbs 1.7 and think about it in this light. Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord, the fear, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. What's the starting point to have knowledge, to get wisdom? It's the fear of the Lord. It's your starting point. If you start with, no, I'm going to reject God's word, then you can't actually have a rational worldview. You're reduced to foolishness. Now, again, this is something that we could develop more and more apologetic stuff. My point is there, you don't have this equal playing ground between a Christian worldview and a non-Christian worldview. It's not that way at all. Is that the non-Christian worldview is really reduced to foolishness, and God continuously says that. God's assessment of unbelieving worldviews is that it's foolishness. We saw that in 1 Corinthians. It's what we see throughout um, to the Psalms and the Proverbs. Wait, you know the verse, the fool says in his heart there is no God. It's a description of somebody who starts with the, the presupposition, there's no God, is, fo- is a fool, according to the Bible. It's irrational, has no real knowledge in his worldview. It's, he's all inconsistent and arbitrary, right? So there's the foolishness of unbelief. Look over at, um, while you're in Proverbs, Proverbs 21, verse 30 as well. Proverbs 21, verse 30. There's no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against Yahweh. Some translations might say there's no wisdom, no understanding, and no counsel that can prevail against Yahweh or the Lord. To the point, though, there's nothing that man can come up with in his wisdom or in his understanding that can actually stand up against the consistent Christian worldview. Remember, Paul says, bring it on. Where's the debater? Where's the scribe? Where are these wise men? Bring them all in. Bring them all into the ring, in the boxing ring, and we'll just keep knocking them down with the Christian worldview because it's truth versus error. It's wisdom versus foolishness in the ultimate sense. Finally, look over at uh, 1 Timothy 6. This is, again, under the foolishness of of unbelief. This is God's assessment of, of those who do not... Fear him, those who do not trust in his word. This is his assessment of them. First Peter, or First Timothy 6, 20 and 21, the very last verses. First Timothy 6, 20. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. That opposing arguments, you could say it's contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So you have these worldviews and these people putting this stuff out there, but it's inconsistent, it doesn't make any sense, it's self-contradictory, it's false knowledge, right? What is falsely called knowledge, and by, by 
which some have professed and thus gone away or astray from the faith. Right? You have truth and you have lies. You have wisdom, you have foolishness. God's assessment of, of an unbelieving worldview is not favorable at all. And it's, it is not at all even close to being equal with God's wisdom. That's his point. He has made foolish the wisdom of the world. How is that so? Let's look at one verse. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Why is this the case? That, that wisdom is in the Christian worldview and foolishness is in every other worldview. Meaning the worldview is irrational, it cannot be defended. When you, when you challenge it, it really doesn't hold up. You can bring on all the debaters and the wise men of the age, and they all get knocked down by God's wisdom. Why is that? Why is that? Well, Colossians 2 gives us some insight on that. Colossians 2, 1 through 10, let's walk through it rather quickly here. But Colossians 2. He says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. Now, here are these parts particularly. Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay? Where is wisdom and knowledge found? In Christ. Look, look at it again. Christ himself and whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if you're not starting here in Christ in the Christian worldview, you don't have access to all the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge. And we're not supposed to let non-Christians rob us of the treasures we have in Christ of wisdom and knowledge. What's he say about how, how are we supposed to, what are we supposed to do with that fact? Verse 4. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. See this? We have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in the Christian worldview in Christ himself so that we're not deluded by the plausible or persuasive arguments of, of unbelievers. It's foolishness when you know how to see it, when you know how to argue for it. He says, for even though I'm absent in the body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Now, again, notice this, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Okay? So you have this, again, this antithesis. Don't be taken in by man's so-called wisdom and their arguments and their philosophies. And you have to stay on Christ. You have to be, like it says, don't be taken in by empty deception, philosophy, according to tradition of men, according to elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. You have Christ or you have the world's thinking, and you you have to stick to Christ. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you want to be foolish... You go and try to be neutral and kind of set aside Christ and the Christian worldview. And now you step into the realm of foolishness because you're no longer standing on wisdom and knowledge that's found with God. Now you're trying to think and argue basically as if you're not a Christian, being neutral. I'm not going to use the Bible. Well, you've just set aside the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are found in Christ. You set aside the Christian worldview in your argumentation. So the point is, is that in all of our discussions with unbelievers, we never stop keeping our entire Christian worldview intact because that's 
really foolish. It leads to, you're basically going to pretend to be in the realm of an unbeliever. You're going to do autonomous reasoning, reasoning apart from God's standard of truth. If you do that, you've set aside wisdom and knowledge and you've become, you're starting to act foolishly. You don't want to do that. Okay? So what's the main point in this, this part? When you're arguing with somebody, it's really simple. Just maintain the Christian worldview. Be a Christian. Don't pretend you're not. If somebody asks you a question about what you believe about a certain thing, you give the biblical answer. Okay? What do you believe about reality? What do you believe about ethics or, or how you know things? You answer it biblically. It's really not hard. You answer it like if a Christian asked you the question. Okay? If a Christian asked me, you know, what do you believe about creation? I always talk about Genesis 1. If an unbeliever asks me what I believe about creation, I'm going to say the same thing and give my reasons, right? Because from a Christian worldview, you have to, you have to give the biblical answer. Okay? So you don't step aside and say, well, we can't. There, there are Christian apologists who will say, what's the one thing you can't use when arguing with unbelievers? And then the audience goes, the Bible. That's not it. Okay? I'm saying the exact opposite of that. Okay? You, you have to, it's the Christian worldview. You have the Christian worldview, and then they have their worldview, and it's a battle of worldviews. Okay? It's, it's Christian worldview in the boxing ring with whatever other worldview the unbeliever has. And the Bible says if you, you know, are able to get, you should be able to give a reason, give an answer. If you stick with God's word, you have wisdom, you have power on that side. And nobody, you can bring up any debater of this age, any wise man, and he'll be knocked down if you're doing apologetics right, using the knowledge and wisdom that God has provided us. Okay? So, maintain the Christian worldview at all times. Don't try to be neutral. Use the Bible. If you, if you try to be neutral, that's, you kind of reduce to foolishness. You don't want to be, 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 put yourself in the position that the unbeliever is in, which is that he's in a position where his worldview is foolish. If you try to be neutral, then you're kind of putting yourself in the shoes of an unbeliever, and that's, that's not what we want to do. We want to maintain the Christian worldview and give argumentation. Now, because of time, I can't go over argumentation. I can't go over the details of argumentation. But we have talked about that before in Sunday school, and I'm happy to talk with anybody about that. And, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll go over that at some point again in the future because it's very important. But I want to I talk about something else. So we're talking about our attitude. Our attitude is that we're going to be Christians the whole time. We're not going to be neutral. But let's talk about our attitude during the actual discussions with unbelievers. And this is really important, too. If you go back to 1 Peter 3, you'll, you'll remember... He says you have to give a, an answer, give a reason, but he also gives the, the, how you're supposed to act during, during that. So 1 Peter three fifteen. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Okay, notice that. It's, it's consistent with everything we said. You're setting aside Christ as Lord in your heart. You're not being neutral. You're being a Christian. Okay, so sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's number one, which is what we just talked about. Be a Christian. He is Lord. Not, you're not using autonomous reasoning that's apart from his word. You're, he is the Lord. You, you stick to his word, the worldview that he has provided in his word. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready okay, to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's within you. Okay? Why do you believe this? Why do you believe that about you know, Christianity and stuff, give, it, give a reason. Why do you believe that about the world? Give the Christian 
reason, give some argumentation. But then he says, yet do it with gentleness and reverence, or gentleness and respect, some translations will say. This is really important for us to get that element of it. Being a real, say, say you, you really get down into it and you study apologetics. You really get it. And you, you absorb it. You're excited. You have the ability now, right? You're standing on God's word. You have the ability to mow over every worldview in the, in the entire world. Okay? And this is, I'm not overstating it. That's actually legitimate. Okay? If you know how to do apologetics. Because, again, it's, it's not, the world has a lot of wisdom and God's wisdom is just a little bit more. So it's a real close battle. It's, there's fool, it's just foolishness. When you get down to it, and then there's wisdom in the Christian worldview. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. So you, so you can mow over, you can destroy these arguments, 2 Corinthians 10. You can destroy these things. But what that sometimes leads to is pugnacious apologists. Pugnacious fighting Christians who really just want to, you know, poke at the unbeliever and provoke them. And Peter says, no, 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 no. Yes, give an argument. Yes, you know, Paul says, destroy arguments. But he says, do it with gentleness and with respect. Okay? And this is vital because once you get, get it, once you get apologetics, you're like, Paul, bring it on. Where's the debater? Where's the scribe? Bring them all into the ring and we'll knock them out. But you have to do it with gentleness and respect. So yes, you're destroying arguments. You're destroying worldview, showing the foolishness of it. Apolog- apologetics is basically this. You're showing that God, since God has said the worldview of unbelievers is foolish, you're demonstrating to them, hey, this is, this is how your worldview is foolish. Your worldview doesn't make sense of the world. Okay? But the Christian worldview does okay? in a nutshell. And there's a lot more you can unpack in that. But the point is you can destroy these things, but you have to do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. There's a good quote. There's a little article from... Um, from Greg Bonson, who's a you know, great apologist. You could learn a lot about apologetics from him. He says this, and I'll read this and think about it. He says, when we begin to use our intellects in the service of our creator and savior, so we're, we're doing apologetics, we're using our minds, you're loving God with our mind, you know, getting the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, using them in our apologetics. When we begin to use our intellects in the service of our creator and savior, we will naturally wish to do so with the best efforts and quality available, right? I want to give the best arguments. I want to be the best apologist there is. I want to be faithful to my Lord and Savior. That's great. He says, it is obvious in the pages of the New Testament that this was the case for the disciples. Whether they were fishermen, tax collectors, or studious teachers of the law, they put their minds to work, searching God's word for better understanding and reasoning with people to persuade them of its truth, Right? They want, you want to have the best of the best, don't you? If you if you're, want to serve Jesus, you want to give the best arguments and be as persuasive and winsome as you can. But then he says this, yet they knew the difference between intellectual argument, which is the presentation of premises or reasons in support of a conclusion. So that's, yeah, they know the difference between intellectual argument, you're giving a logical argument, and the interpersonal spirit of hostility and contention. There's a difference between a good logical argument and hostility and contention in your discussions with unbelievers. So he says, thus Peter, aware of different ways and arguments, aware of the different ways that arguments can be conducted, he specifically reminded his readers of their, he specifically reminded his readers to offer their reasoned defense with gentleness and respect. 
Paul wrote, 2 Timothy 2, 24, the Lord's bondservant must not quarrel, but be gentle toward all, apt to teach, forbearing, in meekness correcting those who oppose them. Right? This does not mean giving even an inch on the issues of truth over which we disagree with the unbeliever, but it does mean, he says, a Dr. Van Til, who was his you know, mentor and who really taught this apologetics, he says, but it does mean, as Dr. Van Til would say, that we keep buying the next cup, cup of coffee for our opponent. All right? So there's this kindness, this gentleness, and this respect for them, all the while showing the foolishness of their worldview and destroying the arguments and so on and so forth. But Peter needs to remind us, you don't be a pugnacious arguer. You can smile, you can talk to them, be gentle, respectful to them. I was able to touch on this a little bit last night if you were here in my message, but one way to be respectful to unbelievers is that you don't just assume what they believe. Okay? That comes across really badly and arrogantly. And you wouldn't like it done to you. Oh, you're a Christian, I know what you believe. You say, well, they might think, what if they think that you're, I don't know, a Pentecostal or a Roman Catholic or something like that? You say, I don't believe any of that stuff. You get mad at them. That's the same goes for every other worldview. Every individual has their own beliefs. If we say, oh, that guy's an atheist, well, I know what he believes. Well, no, you know one thing about what he believes. He doesn't believe in the existence of God. But you don't know what he believes about reality or, or knowledge or ethics, really, because atheists are different. What does the atheist you're talking to believe? You don't want to give an argument that's addressing some other atheist's arguments or his beliefs because that's not relevant to this guy who's in front of you, who you're trying to argue with and persuade and show him the foolishness of his worldview and the wisdom of the Christian worldview to show him that he has no leg to stand on his worldview and he ought to recognize the truth of the Christian worldview and you know, repent and trust in Christ. That's really important that we actually listen and, and arg- like argue, but we argue towards the person we're talking to, not just to some general person out there, but to the person we're talking to. Ask them questions. Why do you, what do you believe? Why do you believe it? Those types of questions. Very important. So that's an aspect of respect. But they are made in the image of God. They're not your... They're not... He, he put the words, he said, you keep buying the next cup of coffee for our opponent. He put the word opponent in quotes, and I think that is telling, and it's right. Yeah, you're opposing each other, but you want to win them, right? You, you, they're not somebody you want to just, you know beaten to the ground and bury, right? You want them to recognize this and then turn and become a Christian, right? You want them to turn, repent of their sins, trust in Christ, see the, see the error of their ways and see the truth of God's word. So it's different. We're not just trying to, to decimate them. We're going to destroy their arguments and their worldview, but we want to be winsome to them at the same time. So do it with gentleness and respect. You have... A lot of, when you get this, this is presuppositional apologetics, when you get this, these arguments, there's nobody who can stand up. Not because of your intellect, but because it's God's truth. Okay? That's why Paul can say, hey, bring it on. Every, every wise man of the world, bring it on, because God has made it all foolish. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense of the world. But with all that power, you have to be gentle with it and know how to use it. There is really, to me, there's really... It's very ugly to see, and I've seen it, presuppositional apologists take videos of themselves on YouTube where they're just being mean to unbelievers, just being pugnacious. And yes, they're maybe giving arguments um, in and of themselves that, yeah, I get where they're going. It doesn't come across well at all to the unbeliever. It's not winsome. It's not gentle and respectful to them. 
You might say, listen, I, they, the person should understand that you care about them. They might not respond very well. I'm not saying that unbelievers are always going to respond well, obviously. But you should be, look at verse 16, this first uh, Peter. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. If people say bad stuff against you, they should be lying. They shouldn't have a good, an actual um, reason to think that you're doing something evil. They should be slandering you when they say bad things about you. Right? You have a good conscience before God and before these men. Say, listen, I'm going to do things right. How you respond is on you, but I'm going to treat you with gentleness and respect. All the while, I'm going to give a good reason here. I'm going to reason well using God's word as my foundation. Okay? So my main points, you're Christian the whole time in your argumentation. You're not sitting inside the Christian worldview, and then you're going to be gentle and respectful. This does not give you an excuse to, to you know, beat up on people just because you have good arguments. And you're meant, to, you're, you're meant to keep your cool. You're the Christian, after all. You're the one who's born again. You're the one who's meant to have self-control. The other guy might lose his cool, but you shouldn't, right? So we want to keep gentleness, respect, and, and be winsome. Now, we have a few minutes. I was hoping we'd have a little bit more, but are there some questions? I know this is a little bit vague because of the time, but yeah, Patrick. Are you recording this? Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> this is, this is, this is one of the best summaries of, of that I've ever heard. Um, what, what do you say in response when someone will say to you, you say, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ and the fear of the Lord's beginning of knowledge. I'm not a Christian. I don't believe the Bible, and I know all kinds of things. Right. So there's a difference. We, we recognize, well, unbelievers do know things. We work with people who are very intelligent unbelievers. We're not saying that they can't know things. We're saying that if their worldview were true, they couldn't know things. So it demonstrates they're living. We're, think about it. In a Christian worldview, our worldview, everybody who lives is living in God's world, right? We're saying the Christian worldview is objectively true. Everybody, the atheist that you know is made in God's image. And the Romans 1 says he knows God exists. He suppresses the truth, but he knows God exists. So because he's made in God's image, and because he's actually living in the world of the Christian God, knowledge is possible. He's able to know things. But he denies God. So if, if his worldview were true, there'd be, no, there'd be no way for knowledge to be possible. So he, he's being inconsistent. He, he's being arbitrary. He's not able to give a reason for why he can know anything. Now, this is getting, this is the next step when we talk about apologetics, is the arguments and everything. But that's it, is that if you don't start with God, the Christian God, biblical worldview, if you don't start there, you can't prove anything. This means when the unbeliever opens his mouth, he's being arbitrary. He doesn't have a reason to believe in anything. So if you listen to, you know, Greg Bonson's debates, good example, his debate with Gordon Stein, who was an atheist philosopher, he argues in there, you showing up to this debate, you're going to use laws of logic in a debate, right? Saying, but you can't account for the existence of laws of logic in your worldview. So you showing up, you've lost. Because you can't account, so you're inconsistent and you're being arbitrary. Just by showing up and using laws of logic, you can't even account for how you know laws of logic or that laws of logic exist or that they never change and all those types of things. It's every, it, it, only, in the, only if you start with the Christian worldview can you make sense of the world. If you don't start with the Christian worldview, you can't make sense of the world. But yet, the people who don't start with the Christian worldview still live in the Christian God's world. So they can know things, but they can't account for why they know things. <laughs> so, so we know that we know 
that they do know things, but the point is, is that they can't account for it. And if, if God didn't exist, there would be no possibility of knowledge. Yeah. Can you explain the difference between uh, presuppositional apologetics and evidentiary <laughs> apologetics? And wasn't R.C. Sproul the latter? Yeah. Uh, yes, for the second question, R.C. Sproul was not a presuppositionalist. Um, and the difference in a nutshell, because there's a lot you could talk about there. Um, one of the big differences is what we talked about this morning is that an evidential approach does attempts to be neutral and expects the unbeliever's autonomous reasoning to lead him to the Bible's truth. So that he says the unbeliever is the the evidentialist said the unbeliever is able without presupposing the Christian worldview is able to make sense of the world and is able to reason his way if you give him enough evidence to get to God. Now, I think the Bible says the opposite of that. I think we saw that in 1 Corinthians. By man's wisdom, you don't get to God. But also, it's, it doesn't really take into account what we call the noetic effects of sin, is that sin affects your thinking. Um, and the Bible talks about you're darkened in your understanding, you're futile in your thinking, Romans 1 and Ephesians 4, I believe. Um, so that's one of the foundational issues. I think a lot of the evidential arguments are fallacious as well. Uh, I think they commit logical fallacies, but we can't get into that right now. But some cosmological arguments, some ontological argument, and teleological argument, I think they commit some fallacies. But the big, the big difference is, evidential says, hey, let me give you enough facts, and then you'll realize your errors. But they reckon, we, what they don't recognize is that evidences are interpreted by worldviews. So as you can pile up fact after fact, and they'll look at that and say, well, I interpret it differently. We see that in the Bible. When, when Jesus healed the man with the withered hand, and all of a sudden it's like the other one. The Pharisees didn't say, wow, you are the son of God. We, we weren't sure before, but now we see it. Because of that, they said, let's go see how we can kill him. Right? The evidence was right before their eyes, but they said this guy. And then they would say, oh, he's, in, he's uh, casting out demons by uh, Satan. They interpreted it as very negative and said, wow, this guy is from God. He's casting out demons. They said, no, he's casting out demons by Satan. Now, Jesus refuted that, but nevertheless, they interpreted it negatively because they presupposed this guy's a, an evil, false prophet or whatever. So there's a lot to this. This is, I mean, it's almost shameful to even try to do this in a half hour or whatever, 40 minutes, but anyway. But concerning evidence, it's not wrong to use evidence of the design in nature In presuppositionalism, you can use any fact in the world to argue for the existence of God because the unbeliever can't know anything. If you, if you understand, the argument is called a transcendental argument. I can't go into it, but the point is, is that you can use any fact. You can use, I mean, Bonson, and I think it was his debate with Tavish, I think it was, he, it was the toothpaste proof for the existence of God. He used a tube of toothpaste as his one of his premises to prove the existence of God. He did it, too. It's not some little joke. He actually did it. You can use toothpaste. You can use grass growing. You can use birds flying. You can use ballet or the opera, whatever. Because, if you understand the argument, they can't make sense out of anything in the world. So take any fact in the world, and you can show the foolishness of unbelief. Um, so, yeah. One thing that helps me is, um, here in Titus 3.3, 3, for we also once were foolish ourselves, and most, many of us remember a lot of foolish years before God saved us. And remembering that they're on, you hope on that side of it now, and that, that their condition's not permanent. But remember, we were just as clueless at some right. point. 
That's right. Yeah, God grants us this. This is not, again, we didn't get real smart by ourselves. and That's what the opposite it says in First Corinthians. You don't get there by man's wisdom. God, it's, our view of knowledge is that it's revealed to us in God's word, not that we get it. Yeah. Yes. And it should be used. But I think the point you're making um, is that you, you present that not as, let's all empty ourselves of all of our commitments, check this out. Isn't this pretty good evidence that God mm-hmm. exists? It's while you're presenting it, you're presenting it as a Christian, as an example of something the Christian God made and as evidence of his wisdom and power. You're not presenting it in a neutral fashion. So like you said, everything in creation, yeah, use, use that evidence, but use it as a Christian. That's right. Yeah, he's as a Christian. There's merely the evidential approach, and it's been said before that God is in the dark. Yeah, so you're telling God, prove yourself to me. Presuppositionalism has God as a starting point. Yeah, because God has already said, "Hey, everything's you all are foolish." You can't say, "Well, God, let me see if you can prove yourself to me." Yeah. Can you comment on Proverbs twenty six four and five? Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, so the, uh, it does, it does. I'll take one minute on this. I know we have to be running out of time. But Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, um, the answer a fool, answer not a fool. Um, do not answer a fool according to his folly. You will also be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that, you be, that he be not wise in his own eyes. So the answer, don't answer, two-step approach to presuppositional apologetics is that do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you'll be also like him. So don't step into, don't, don't, be neutral and kind of set aside the Christian worldview and answer as if you are an unbeliever, then you'll be a fool like him. But answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he be not wise in his own eyes. But step into his worldview for the sake of argument and show, look, if your worldview were true, knowledge would be impossible, everything's reduced to absurdity and foolishness. So don't actually pretend to be an unbeliever in your arguments and be neutral and Set aside your, your wisdom and knowledge in Christ and become a fool for the sake of, in that sense. But then when you, you do a, what we call an internal critique, you, you say, look, let's just pretend we're an atheist. Let's see. Can I account for why it's wrong to steal and murder and rape? No. It's all arbitrary. Can I account for why science works? No. Can I account for laws of logic? No. So we say, this worldview doesn't make sense of anything. Right? So you show to him, hey, this is foolish. But you don't go in there and set aside your, your foundation the Christian worldview and actually become a fool like him and be neutral and you know then then you don't have any knowledge either in that argument. So that's kind of the idea from those. That's that should be talked about longer, but uh, I only have it's ten till, so we've got to probably wrap up here in a second. But yeah. Yeah, think about that verse. A lot of evidentialists will say, well, if we can just prove the resurrection, then everybody will believe. And they say, says, no, even if somebody comes back from the dead, they won't believe. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe if somebody comes back from the dead. So again, it's the Bible, it's the foundation. Even Jesus, Jesus, Jesus was a presuppositionalist. He said that the Bible, the foundation of God's word is where, where it comes from, not from merely evidences that are interpreted through man's autonomous reasoning. People paid off soldiers to lie about Jesus' resurrection, right? So, all right, we should cut it there. I wish we could talk for another hour, but all right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We pray that you will help us to learn. Um, I know this is just a basic thing, but help us to be faithful as Christians when we discuss with unbelievers, when we try to share the gospel with them. Um, help us to be gentle and respectful to them as well, loving them, 
Um, and we pray that they will they open doors for your word and that the lost will, will come to Christ, that you'll show them the, the foolishness of their worldview and show them the truth of Christ. We pray for our morning worship, pray for Patrick's preaching, pray that you bless him and give him um, strength, and we just uh, pray that you'll help us to be good hearers and doers of your word. I ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.